1926, James Allen wrote his famous uh, tribute. You guys, the mics are still on. We can hear you. I'm glad they weren't swearing or anything. Anyway. Okay, let's go back. 1926, James Allen wrote his famous tribute uh, to Jesus called uh, One Solitary Life. He says, he was born in an obscure village, the son of a peasant woman. He grew up in another village where he worked in a carpenter shop until he was 30. Then for three years, he became a wandering preacher. He never wrote a book. He never held an office. He never had a family or owned a house. He didn't go to college. He never visited a big city. He never traveled 200 miles from the place where he was born. He did none of those things one usually associates with greatness. He had no credentials but himself. He was only 33 when the tide of public opinion turned against him. His friends ran away. He was turned over to his enemies and went through a mockery of a trial. He was executed by the state. While he was dying, his executioners gambled for his clothing, the only property he had on earth. When he was dead, he was laid in a borrowed grave through the pity of a friend. Twenty-one centuries have come and gone, and today he is the central figure of the human race and the leader of mankind's progress. All the armies that ever marched, all the navies that ever sailed, all the parliaments that ever sat, all the kings that ever reigned put together have not affected the life of, of man on earth as much as that one solitary life. Now, if you can find a... Uh, historian who's non-biased, any non-biased historian, would agree with that statement. You know, the Library of Congress, Washington, D.C., they have 17,000 different books in the United States on the person of Jesus. Now, it's, it's twice as much as the runner-up, which is Shakespeare. It's been estimated that worldwide there are 186,000 different books on the person of Christ. Now, I'll put that in perspective. How many books are on your life? What do you think? How many you got? Uh, not a whole lot, but Jesus, 186,000 different books about him. Matter, he's got a whole country named after him, El Salvador, the Savior. Uh, there are 2.18 billion people in this world who claim to follow Jesus. The second uh, faith, Islam, has one billion, so it's twice, twice as many. And you have to ask yourself, well, this is a pretty influential guy, I guess, but who was he or who is he? And people have different ideas there as well. Gandhi says he was a man who was completely innocent. He offered himself as a sacrifice for the good of others. The Quran, which doesn't have a whole lot of bad stuff to say about Jesus, actually, but it says here that uh, they said, quote, we killed Christ Jesus, the son of Mary, the messenger of Allah, unquote. But they killed him not, nor crucified him, but so it was made to appear to them. They're saying that Jesus really wasn't crucified or risen from the dead. Thomas Jefferson says that the day will come when the mystical generation of Jesus, by the supreme being as his father in the womb of a virgin, will be classed with the fable of the generation of Minerva in the brain of Jupiter. And basically what he means by that is this whole idea of Jesus being God is balderdash. Uh, Napoleon said this, he said, I know men, and I tell you that Jesus Christ is no mere man. Between him and every other person in the world, there is no possible term of comparison. Alexander, Caesar, Charlemagne, and I have founded empires. But on what did we rest the creation of our genius? Upon force. 
Jesus Christ founded his empire upon love, and at this hour millions of men would die for him. The father of the Hare Krishna movement. He says, Christ is just another way of saying Krishna, the name of God, the general name of the supreme personality of the Godhead, whose specific name is Krishna. Therefore, whether you call God Christ or Krishna, ultimately you are addressing the same supreme personality of the Godhead. John Lennon. He said, I believe in God, but not as one thing, not as an old man in the sky. I believe that what people call God is something in all of us. The Dalai Lama says that Jesus Christ had lived previous lives. Brad Pitt, great theologian, he says, I didn't understand this idea of a God who says, you have to acknowledge me. It seemed to be about ego. I can't see God operating from ego, so it makes no sense to me. Richard Dawkins, in talking about Jesus, he says, barking mad. Ralph Waldo Emerson, he said that Jesus belonged to the race of the prophets. He, as I think, is the only soul in history who has appreciated the worth of man. And Frederick Nietzsche, talking about Jesus, he says, that's the story of a poor fellow, unsated and insatiable love, who had to invent hell in order to send to it those who did not want to love him, and who finally, having gained knowledge about love, had to invent a God who is all love, all ability to love, who has mercy on human love because it is so utterly wretched and unknowing. Lots of different views, perspectives on this, on this Jesus. Now, we need to keep in mind, though, that any uh, ambiguous view of Jesus, it's not because Jesus wasn't clear. Jesus was very, very clear about his identity. Matter of fact, Jesus says that all of eternity rests on your understanding who he is. And so seven different times in the book of John, he says, I am, and then he defines himself. So if there's ambiguity around who Jesus is, it's based on either ignorance or unbelief, straight up. But seven times we bring to, this brings us to the end of our series on I am. We're going to close down with the last uh, I am statement that Jesus makes just hours before his cross. So if you close your eyes with me. As we work through our memory technique and get all seven, remember the goal of this thing is for us to remember the seven I am's down the road. Maybe we'll have a contest in a few weeks. But at the bottom, you see six loaves of bread, monster loaves of bread. The three on the bottom, two on top of that, one on the very top. They're like a pyramid. Huge loaves of bread. But these are not normal loaves of bread. These are 35-day-old bread. It's big 35 stamped on the edge of each loaf. In John 6, 35, Jesus says, I am the what? Bread of life, right. And coming out of that top loaf is, is a light pole with a big stop sign attached at the top. Now, you can't tell it's a stop sign. It's been spray-painted gray. But there are light bulbs at every corner of the stop sign. There are eight corners. You see two at the top, two at the bottom, two on the left, two on your right. There are eight bulbs. These are 12-watt bulbs. In John 8, 12, Jesus says, I am the what? Light of the world. And right on top of the light pole, you've got a door. It's a huge door. This is a Goliath-type door, 10 feet tall, with nine doorknobs on this door. Three across the top, three across the middle, three across the bottom. Any doorknob will work. But in John 10, 9, Jesus says, I am the door. Easy enough, okay. Sitting right on top of the door, it's a little boy. Looks like Opie from Andy Griffith. It's a little shepherd boy. He's 10 years old. He's got freckles. Kind of cute. He's got a shepherd staff. You can tell he's a little shepherd's boy, but he's got huge feet. A size 11, which is large for a 10-year-old kid. In John 10, 11, Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. Sitting right on top of this kid's head is a cave. And in this cave, I mean, as you can tell, it's like the kind Jesus was buried in because the boulder is rolled away. It's an 11 Ton boulder. And walking out of the, the cave is a mummy. 
But he's alive, but he's not zombie-esque. He's breathing. He's got, a, he's got an oxygen tank on his back, a 25-pound oxygen tank. In John eleven twenty-five, 25, Jesus said, I am the... Yeah, a little bit soft there. Okay, on top of that, you've got a highway. This is just not any normal highway. This is Highway 14. See, if you were going over it like a helicopter or something, you see a big, huge one, four, painted on the highway. Highway 14. And on the highway are six beautiful, red, uh, monstrously purring Ferraris. Cool cars. Six of them. Two in the front, two in the middle, two in the back. Six. And John 14, six, Jesus says, I am the... Way, truth, and life, yes. And coming right out, keep your eyes closed, because coming right out of the highway, busting right through the middle, is a vine, like a jack in the beanstalk vine. This vine is like 15 miles high, though. This is a huge vine. 15, that's going to take a long time to climb this vine. 15 miles high, but if you get to the top, you notice it's got one grape. Just one big old grape. John 15, 1, Jesus says, I am the guest. Vine, I am the vine. Okay, you can open your eyes, turn to John chapter 15. I am the vine. Wow, it's kind of a strange sort of uh, uh, saying, but let's read it. Start in verse 1 of John 15. He says, I am the true vine, and my father is the gardener. He cuts off every branch in me that bears no fruit, while every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes so it will be even more fruitful. You are already clean because of the word I have spoken to you. Remain in me, and I will remain in you. No branch can bear fruit by itself. It must remain in the vine. Neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. I am the vine, and you are the branches. If a man remains in me, and I in him, he will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not remain in me... He is like a branch that is thrown away and withers. Such branches are picked up, thrown into the fire and burned. But if you remain in me and my words remain in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be given to you. This is to my Father's glory, that you bear much fruit, showing yourself to be my disciples. Now this whole idea of the uh, vine, again, this is kind of a sort of a strange thing, isn't it? What in the world does this mean? But for his, just like all the rest of the, the, the analogies, the metaphors, uh, for his audience, this had, this was made great sense. They understood this exactly. You see, the, the, the image of the vine is all over the Old Testament. It's all over the Old Testament. It was the planting of the nation of Israel. We see this in lots of places, but we'll, uh, Psalm 80. It says, you transplanted a vine from Egypt. You drove out the nations and planted it. You cleared the ground for it, and it took root and filled the land. The mountains were covered with its shade, the mighty cedars with its branches. Its branches reached as far as the sea. It shoots as far as the river, and it goes on and on and on. This was, all, matter of fact, the, the Jews liked this. They embraced this idea that they were the, the planting of God, that they were the vine. Josephus, he was a Roman historian who wrote about the time of Jesus. He said that outside the temple, there was this huge gold, pure golden uh, vine with, with had uh, grapes on it and clusters of grapes the size of a man. I mean, this thing was just massive. And the wealthy could go and purchase leaves to put on it and themselves. It was just this massive emblem of the nation of Israel. Israel loved this, that they were here on earth planted by God. God was their vine dresser. They knew this. He was, he was their vine dresser. But, but they belonged to him. They were, they were his planting. They loved this. Now, the remarkable thing about this, though, 
is that every single time this metaphor of the vine is used in Scripture, referring to Israel, every single time it refers to Israel's inability to produce fruit. I mean, every time we see this picture, it, it, it comes with this judgment on Israel because they did not pr- produce the fruit. Isaiah chapter 5 says, I will sing for the one I love a song about his vineyard. My loved one had a vineyard on a fertile hillside. He dug it up and cleared it of stones, and he planted it with its choicest vines. And remember, this is the nation of Israel. He built a watchtower in it, and he cut out a wine press as well. Then he looked for a crop of good grapes, but it yielded only bad fruit. On and on and on. See, Israel forgot something. This is real important for us. They thought that the only reason really why they were, we would say, saved, why they were chosen, why they were the favored nation, is because God wanted to take them to heaven one day. God wanted a a group of people that he could bestow things on. God just liked them better. For some reason, these guys thought that they were just there as recipients of God's grace and, and strength. But actually, from the very beginning, their job was to bear fruit. And they failed, 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 failed continuously. Remember, he tells Abraham, when Abraham starts this whole ball rolling in in Genesis 12, he says that their purpose is there to bless the nations. He says, as surely as I live, declares the Lord, the whole earth will be filled with my glory. His people were supposed to do that. But they failed, they failed, they failed. And so Jesus, just hours before he's, he's crucified, he looks at his guys. He says, I know... We think the picture of the vine is really for the nation of Israel, but we're changing that all up right now. I am the true vine. And you guys are the branches. Look what he says. If you abide in me, uh, and I, I in you, you will produce fruit. You will do what you were supposed to do. This is amazing sort of stuff. If you look on verse... um, you know, verse, verse 5, he said, I'm the vine, you're the branches. If a man remains in me and I in him, he will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. And then in verse 16, he says, You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you to go and bear fruit, fruit that will last. Isn't that wild? You want to know why he chose you, why he appointed you? He did, so that you would bear fruit. That was the goal. And not just fruit, but fruit that will last. You know, every human being has within them a a quest for significance, a desire to be uh, the best, a desire to do something that outlasts themselves, right? We, We desire greatness. Now, is that a sign of the fall? Or is that, I believe, a sign of the image of God within us? Problem is, what we do is we take that quest for significance and we turn it towards our work, and we turn it towards our relationships. And we turn it towards our, the size of my waist or the size of my biceps or the size of my office or, or this, the size of my, my house. Or we turn it towards my sports or we turn it to my awards or my GPA. And, and these are the things that we seek our identity in. And the reality is those things may give you identity for a short time. But Jesus says, no, 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 no. I want you to have fruit that will last. That's bigger than those things. Don't waste your life on those little things. Don't waste your life making mud pies. I want something for you. Greatness is what he's offering us here. This is amazing. He's offering us something bigger, that that, that quest of, of significance. He's saying it is found 
here. Don't waste your life trying to fill it someplace else. He's offering us greatness. What an, an amazing, amazing thing. We say, well, okay, this is kind of cool. But if Israel couldn't pull this off after 2,000 years, what's to make us think that we can pull this off either? And Jesus has the answer here in the text. It's the whole idea about him being the vine. The first way we do it is uh, what older versions would say, abiding. You've heard this word, abiding, or remaining. Uh, Verse 4, he says, Remain in me, and I will remain in you. No branch can bear fruit by itself. It must remain in the vine. Neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. You know what's fascinating about this text? The first eight verses, the topic is obviously fruit bearing. We find fruit mentioned in there seven different times. Fruit, 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 bear fruit, bear fruit. But there's only one command in this whole first eight verses. And you'd think the command would be go bear fruit. You can't go to the apple tree, can you? And look at the branch and say, bear fruit, bear fruit, I want you to bear fruit, command you to bear fruit, I'm going to chop you down if you don't bear. It doesn't, that's not going to work. But if the tree is healthy, and if the branch is rightfully joined to the tree, you know what? Growth is inevitable, isn't it? It's going to happen. The issue isn't your command. The issue is, is the branch appropriately uh, connected to the tree? If the tree's healthy and Jesus is the vine, so I'm guessing he's healthy, the issue is abiding. Now, what does abiding mean? Abiding, uh, let me give you a, a, a definition on this. It is to live your life in constant consciousness of who Jesus is. And we're going we're gonna to unpack that in a second, but this is where all the I am's come together. Now, you've got to think with me. You've got to stick with me. Because where we, we, we walked in here in the middle of a conversation. This really started back in chapter 13. 13 through 17 is what's known as the upper room discourse. It's the very last conversation Jesus has with his apostles before he's crucified. And what he says in chapter 14, really, really important. He says, I'm going away. And everyone's kind of said, oh, you're going away. He says, and then he stops. He says, no, no, hang on a minute. It's for your good that I go away. Because if I don't go away, the Holy, Holy Spirit won't come. And I'm going away physically, but I will come to you and I will make my home in you through the Holy Spirit. I will remain in you. I'm not going to leave you as orphans. He says all over the place, says, I will never leave you or forsake you. I will remain with you. It's this promise in chapter 14. I will remain with you. The, our union with Christ is not dependent on us. It's dependent on Him. In Romans chapter 8 and Ephesians chapter 1, once we come to a place where we surrender our life to Christ, we trust Him, at that point, we are sealed with the Holy Spirit. We are baptized with the Holy Spirit. We get all of the Holy Spirit. We don't get part of Him. Then a little bit more later on, we get all of the Holy Spirit. He comes within us, resides within us. Jesus remains within us. And that's what He's saying. Our union, my union with you, is dependent on my remaining. It's dependent on me. I'm not going anywhere. I'm here. But then chapter 15, he says, But there's a corresponding responsibility on your part. While our union is dependent on me, our communion is dependent on you. Our union is dependent on me remaining with you. I'm not going anywhere. That's safe. But our communion is dependent on you remaining with me. Will you remain with me? It's, it's, like, it's like a marriage. You know, you get good marriage and... 
we have a bunch of them here, and, and the pastor says some things, and the guy says some stuff, and the girls, and they make promises that they never know what they're talking about, but they, but they make them anyway, and they pass a ring back and forth, and they sign a paper, and then they are legally and culturally and spiritually a one. They, they are married. They're married, legally. That's, that's, they're, they're there. But for, for the fellowship to continue, right? I mean, it, it's, it's the guy, if he ever gets to a place where he quits thinking about her and quits sacrificing for her, and quits caring for her, and quit, quits praying for her, they grow apart. Now, they still legally to go, yeah, 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 but they are far, far apart. And Jesus says, we are together. But if we're going to stay that way with, with, with a, a communion, that's it's you abiding with me. What, what abiding is, is abiding is living your life with the understanding of the I am's. That's why, that's why we've been doing this. With the understanding that he is the bread of life. Nothing, lots of other stuff in this world will say it satisfies me. But you live your life based on the fact that, no, no, Jesus satisfies me, not everything else. I'm not trying other stuff. It's living your life as if he is the light of the world. And I'm going to follow him. And if he leads me places that I don't understand, I trust him because he's the light of the world. And he's the door. And lots of other things are promising me the full life and the good life. Yeah, but only through Jesus can I go in and out and find pastor. So I'm following after him. He's the good shepherd. Lots of other guys disguised like the good shepherd. They're promising me everything. But the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. And so I'm trusting him and following him. And he is the resurrection, the life. And down here, it's easy to get the mindset that says, you know what, life is just about what happens here, man. So make it count. But the resurrection and life, the, the idea behind that, right, is, oh, no, 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 death doesn't have the, the final word. Matter of fact, that's just the entryway. Live for that which is beyond, not for this here. And so I live in light of the resurrection and the life, Jesus being that. Because Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. There's no one comes to the Father but by me. Lots of other ways out there. But there's only one way to the Father and as I put all these together and I think them out, you know what? That's Jesus being the vine. That's me, me remaining and abiding in him. And as I do that, as I do that, he says, fruit's inevitable. You don't have to try. Fruit's inevitable. It's the spiritual work. It's through the spirit. It's going to happen. It will be there. Now, there's one other way that, that we bring about fruit. We need to abide, and again, I wish we had time to, to take the passage apart a little bit more, because two key spiritual disciplines that we find all over the place in here are God's Word and prayer. Uh, but don't confuse both of, either one of these, or both of these, for abiding. Abiding incorporates them both, but it's not either one of them in and of itself. It's just not. You know as well as I do, people who know their Bible and they study the Bible, but they are not walking with, with, with Christ. Uh, but to walk with Christ, you do need to be in His Word. And this is the deal. We don't go to read your Bible. Don't go to memorize your Bible. Uh, you're hearing that here, right, from the pulpit. Did he say what I think? He said, yeah, don't go study your Bible. Do this. When you, when you go to open your Bible, come before Him and say, Lord, I'm your servant. I'm your child. What, what marching orders do you have for me today? Do you have anything for me this day? What, what, what would you have for me? And as you read, stop and listen and think through your, your life. And he'll tell you. He'll speak. It's his word. And when you pray, don't just, I've got to get through my prayer list. Bam, bam, bless, 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 bless. Okay, I'm done. Uh, when you go, get on your knees and say, God, I just want to share with you my heart, my confusion, my whatever. I'm not even sure you're here right now. God, and as you do, you know what? You are abiding 
with him. But there's a second way in which Jesus promises fruit here. Number one is abiding. That has to be there. But the second way he mentions, we really don't like to talk about this. Matter of fact, it's not really um, understood by a lot of people. But if we don't realize that this is a piece of the puzzle, when it's put into the picture, and it will be put into the picture, it will send you into a downward spiral. Lots of new Christians especially don't understand this and get tripped up here. But that's found in verses 1 and 2 of 15. Where he says, I'm the vine, my father's the gardener. He cuts off every branch in me that bears no fruit. Well, every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes so that it will be even more fruitful. Do you see that? He doesn't just prune the bad ones. Kind of like that, unless you were one of the bad ones. No, I don't want that either. But he prunes the ones that are doing well. He's going, oh man, that kind of stinks. You'd think if you're working hard and you're producing and stuff that maybe you should at least earn the reward of not being pruned, right? We were back in uh, Appleton. Uh, we had some friends who had a vineyard. And my wife is kind of, I don't know if you know Teresa, she is a person of the soil. She really loves to garden. We don't have a big place right now and uh, the, the soil's not working with us anyway. But uh, she, we called this guy and we said, hey, can you get us a vine? He said, yeah, sure not. We didn't have a clue we were doing. He said, sure, not a problem. So he brings one over and he, he puts it in and he puts up a little trellis for us. And springtime, summer comes and this thing is just taking off. I mean, it was really, it was, it was, isn't it fun to watch stuff grow and wow, look at real grapes. This is cool. Check it out. Uh, anyway, come, come wintertime, early wintertime, Randy shows up to do a little pruning. I was horrifically amazed at what this man did. I mean, I thought he killed this thing. He just was cutting, and he just kept on cutting. I mean, all kinds of stuff was coming off. I'm thinking, don't cut that piece off. All kinds of grapes came off of that piece, cutting it all off. And I thought, man, he's destroying this thing. However, come next spring and summer, even more. It was amazing to me. Jesus' goal for you and I is that we bear fruit. Right? That's why, why he chose us. Why he, he pointed us to go bear fruits. Israel didn't do it. We, I believe Romans 11 says Israel was cut off. The church was grafted in. I think this is what he's talking about. That we might bear, bear fruit. And the way he wants us to, that to happen is by pruning us. That's his goal. Now, when you prune, sometimes you cut off the good things. And so sometimes in our life, good things he has to cut off. There's nothing wrong with it. You know, we have a tendency, I think, as evangelicals, if you take something away, and I say, well, you know what, I probably was liking that too much anyway. You know, I think I, maybe I was starting to worship that. Maybe not. Maybe it was a good thing. Maybe, you know what, I don't know why that, that's gone, because I was trying to be a good steward with it, and I was trying to treat it, and I wasn't abusing it or anything, and why did he remove it? Why did he take it away? I don't know. He removes good things because, because he wants to grow us. It's really 1 Peter 1, 6 and 7. He says, In this you, you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. He says, These have come so that your faith of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may be proved genuine. And may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. This is why these things come. This is James 
1, right, verses 2 and 3, where he says, Consider it all joy, my brothers, when you encounter various trials. I mean, why would you consider it joy to encounter various trials? Because you know that the testing of your faith produces. The pruning of your faith produces. This is why he prunes our faith, to produce. That's, that's, that's the goal. That's what he's seeking to bring about. Which is why I think the psalmist in Psalm 119, verse 71, he says, it was good for me that I was afflicted, that I might learn your statutes. As, as we we're pruned. Good things pruned sometimes. Uh, it's that we might grow. It's that we might look, look like Christ more. But we've got to understand just a couple things about the pruning process, because again, we get all convoluted with here. Pruning is not necessarily punishment. Now, there may be times when we do something stupid. He's got to correct us. He's got to pull us back in, right? We, we do enough of those kind of things. But not every time we're pruned is that punishment. Sometimes he cuts away good things. Sometimes uh, as you're a coach and you're training, you're making your guys go through some pain. It's not because you don't like them. It's not because they've done anything bad. Because you know what's coming Friday night and they better be ready. And so the most loving thing you can do is get, is get them ready. It's not punishment. In, in Hebrews chapter 12, he says, Our fathers disciplined us for a little while as they thought best. As they, they grew us. But God disciplines us for our good, that we may share in his holiness. And he says, No discipline seems pleasant at the time, but painful. Later on, however, it produces a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who've been trained by it. The pruning process produces, which is why he does it. Now, personally, I think uh, it'd be cool if I could just uh, produce without the pruning. Wouldn't that be cool? Or it'd be cool. You think sometimes, well, God, can I just produce a little bit less? Can we just lay off the pruning for a while? And God says, no, 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 no. It's when you, you produce much fruit, fruit that will remain. That's when you'll sense. That's when you'll know the joy that you couldn't know otherwise that you couldn't understand otherwise. Malcolm Muggridge, he write, wrote this. Fascinating. He says, Suppose you eliminated suffering. What a dreadful place this world would be. I would almost rather eliminate happiness. The world would be a most ghastly place because everything that corrects the tendency of this unspeakable little creature man to feel overimportant and overpleased with himself would just disappear. He's bad enough now. But he would be absolutely intolerable if he never suffered. The, the, the pruning process God uses to grow us. He uses to grow us. Um, the second thing is about pruning. John 15, he prunes us that we might, so that, purpose for, bear more fruit. Right. So the quality and quantity of fruit is dependent upon Pruning, isn't it? See this? The quality and quantity of fruit is dependent upon pruning. There's my favorite hymn. I think it's a Francis Havergill song. More love, O Christ, to thee. She says, more love, O Christ, to thee, more love to thee. Hear thou this prayer I make on bended knee. This is my earnest plea. More love, O Christ, to thee, more love to thee, more love to thee. So you understand her, her goal. She really wants to know Christ more, wants to love, love him more. She got, got it. Second verse, she says, Once earthly joy I craved, sought peace and rest. Now thee alone I seek, give what is best. 
This all my prayer shall be, more love, O Christ, to thee, more love to thee, more love to thee. So far, if she would have stopped the song there, it would have been cool. But third verse, she says, let sorrow do its work. Send grief and pain. Sweet are thy messengers. Sweet their refrain when they can sing with me. More love, O Christ, to thee. This was a, a gal who understood that if you want to, to, to shine, if you want to be pure in your faith, if you want to produce, then you know what? The road to get there is the road marked with pruning. It just is. It just is. And if you think about the people that, that have, uh, you are inspired by or the people who inspire you, who are you, these are usually people, right? Saints who have strong faith, who've walked through it. They have walked through it. Uh, Amy Carmichael. I, I, I think of, of Amy. She's working at a uh, home that she started in, in India where she's protecting little girls from being, becoming sex prostitutes in the temples. She's saving them and protecting them. What greater work? She's sharing the gospel and discipling these girls. She's walking through her backyard. She trips. She breaks her leg and it never heals. And you go, he prunes those who bear fruit in order that they might bear more fruit. Let me encourage you to read Amy's little book, Rose from Briar. Incredible little book. She talks about this process and what it has done in her heart and her life and in her faith. Uh, God, God prunes us that it might produce. As you start, think about your own journey, a lot of the things that have made us who we are, a lot of the, the things that have shaped us, that have sharpened us, have come at the end of... God's pruning knife, haven't they? That they just have. I don't don't like it that way, but that's the way it is in this fallen world. Another thing you need to know about pruning is that um, his hand is never closer than when he prunes. Now it feels like it's so far, far, far away. Isaiah chapter forty-three. What a great, what a great text. Isaiah forty-three. Do we have that up? It says, when you walk through the fire, you'll not be burned. Do we have one right before that, or do we lose it? There you go. This is what the Lord says. He who created you, Jacob, he who formed you, Israel, do not fear, for I redeemed you. I've summoned you by name, and you are mine. When you pass through the waters, I'll be with you. And when you pass through the rivers, they will not sweep over you. When you walk through the fire, you will not be burned. The flames will not set you ablaze. For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. Wow, what a, what a promise. The master vine dresser knows what needs to be pruned. Do we trust him with the knife or, or not? And there are times we're not so sure. We're looking at ourselves, and somebody else didn't have this pruned out of their life, but we have it pruned out of our life and we're going, what is the deal? But we got to know that everything that is pruned out of our life had to be. There's no randomness with God. It had to be in order that we might bear more fruit. We might not understand easily. I'm with you. We might not understand. But we trust him in, in his pruning ability. And one, more, one more thing I want to show you. In uh, 15... Where he says, I am the true vine. Now, if you look at this closely, I didn't see it at first. And my father, the gardener, he cuts off every branch in me that bears no fruit. Well, every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes. So it'll be even more fruitful. Everybody 
gets the knife. Everybody gets the knife. It's not just, you can't, can't get the phrase that says, well, I'll tell you what, I'm just not going to produce as much, see, so I'm not pruned as much. No, 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 everybody falls under the pruning knife of the Lord. But here's the deal. If you're not abiding, when that pruning knife comes, it's going to bring about destruction. Because your faith will not be strong enough to handle. And you've got to know, and I hope you understand already, and many of you much more so than I do, you've got it coming at you. I mean, it's already been sent. It's in transport. One day it will get there. And when it does, if your faith, if you're not abiding, your faith is not strong, under the pruning knife of God, there will be destruction. There might not be a lot of time to go back and figure it out and spend a little bit more time trying to get prepped for this one. You know, you think about the kid in school who blows off class all the way to the end. He doesn't pay any attention. And all of a sudden, two hours before, he's going to try to cram and pass the final. Uh, If he hasn't been prepared up to that point, you know what? Do the best you can, buddy, but probably not going to pass. It's just too late at at this point. Uh, Those who are not abiding with him under the pruning knife of God, it's destruction. But those who, who are abiding with him. It's painful, yeah. Confusion, probably. Tears, yeah, oh yeah. But there becomes, it becomes a joy. There becomes a harvest of peace. There comes an understanding knowing who your God is. There becomes fruit that you would never have imagined. Let's take just a moment, direct our attention to the screen, and listen to the story of one of our congregants as he went through this. My name is Ron Franklin. I was 17. (laughs) She was 17. And we made a kind of a date for for the following Sunday after church and uh, just to go for a ride. And after we got done with that ride, we both knew this was the right one. You know, Carol and I had one of these uh, love affairs that never ended. Our, we, our honeymoon never ended. And we would have been married 50 years. Uh, she died two and a half months before we made the 50. I'm in my office one day and I get a phone call from her. And we had a repairman coming to fix the washer. I left a check out for her to write the amount on and everything. And she couldn't do it. She called me up and said, Dear, I don't know how to fill out a check. You know, that's when all the little things that had been taking place and I'd been ignoring all came to fruition and I knew I had a real problem. Overall, and I would say 80% of the time, I was rather joyful, which is a weird word when you know your wife has Alzheimer's and you know the outcome, you can't alter it. I had prayed, you know, as we all would do, for the Lord to cure her. And I found out, as time went on, that he wasn't curing her, he was curing me. I was, had been very impatient uh, as a younger man. I had not been very uh, uh, aware of or even wanted to be aware of other people's problems. This time with Carol really made me a more understanding, a more empathetic person. This journal on Carol is 99 pages long. Wednesday, April 22nd, 2009. 
Her personhood is almost gone. I get very little reaction when I speak to her. I can get her to laugh in the morning when we get up, but as the day progresses, she gradually shuts down. It's almost like living alone, except I need to take care of all her bodily functions, and there's no feedback from her. Before she died, Monday, February 15th, 2010. Dear Lord, look after both of us. I feel as if my eyes will burst with tears at any moment, and my heart with them. But I hold the tears back and try to quiet my heart. Help me too, Lord. Hold the days whittled down to a precious view. These precious days I'll spend with you. I felt more joy during those years of taking care of Carol than I ever had. It sounds really stupid, but joy is not necessarily happiness. And that is, when I think back, that concept of joy is what I think of most. And the Lord had to teach me that, that joy is not equated with temporal happiness which is dependent upon material things. I read the book of Job, and uh, God never answered the question, why? He just said to Job, where were you when I created the universe? <laughs> and you, at some point in our lives, we just have to bow down and say, Lord, I don't understand it, but I trust you. And when you're in dependency on God, you, you grow, or you, or you go the other way. <laughs> When you're dependent on God, you grow. When you're abiding, when you remain in Him and the pruning knife comes, you grow. Or, if you're not abiding, you go the other way. I may ask you this this morning. If you know Him, are you abiding in Him? Did you realize that, that the whole purpose of your salvation, your, your creation, your recreation, is that you would bear fruit? That's why. And he wants to help you get there. You're not on your own. Matter of fact, he says if you try to do it on your own, nothing. You can accomplish nothing. But just abiding in him, understanding who he is, living your life as if he is truly the bread of life and the light of the world and, and the door and the way, the truth, and life and the good shepherd and the resurrection and the life. Living your life this way will bring fruit. It will bring fruit. Are you perhaps going under pruning right now and you don't understand I love what Ron said at the end he said sometimes we don't understand we just have to say God I trust you and we trust him as the vine dresser that we might bear more fruit 